Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 97. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for um, thanks for letting us have a week off. We really appreciate it. We do. Here's what happened. <laughs> See, what, what happened, happened was, was. <laughs> uh, Jen and I got to like the week and then I was like, oh, hey, I forgot I'm going out of town tomorrow for the rest of the week. <laughs> so <laughs> why and did I we need also to- <laughs> was going out of town for the weekend. Yeah. And then we were like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? So. <laughs> so we took a week off, and uh, you guys are cool about it, and we appreciate it. Super appreciate it. You're yeah. the best. Yeah. So how was your time away? It was nice. We went to this, like, um, it was like a family, my side of the family, mountain home deal. Everybody's vaccinated. Yeah. Um. um but it was like a mountain home right on a river. So that was pretty cool. So it was nice. It was nice to see like all my nephews and um, my niece who I was looking forward to seeing. Yeah, I know she listens to this podcast. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Sophia. She ditched us for her cool high school friends that went to the beach instead. What? So unfortunately, I didn't get to snuggle with my niece, Sophia. I love you, Sophia. <laughs> How dare you, Sophia? I uh, know. But I did get to snuggle on my new nephew. He's like a brand new baby. His name's Silas. He's adorable. And I got to see Aww. my other nephews, Sean and William. And we had um, – and then my kids were there. <laughs> <laughs> I got to snuggle with them. Yeah. It was nice. We had a good time. It was good to see everybody. Yeah. Yeah. We uh we went to the beach with Ben's parents and it was so it was like perfect beach weather. Just like 70 degrees, not too hot. Of course, I still got burnt on the tops of my feet because I've refused to believe that you can get a sunburn in 70 degree weather. Mm-hmm. But you can, guys. You can oh, yeah, if you yeah. sit on the beach all day and it's very bright sun. Uh, yeah, so I got I got sunburnt on the tops of my feet and they're so itchy right now. <laughs> like now it's like peeling. Oh man! Because I did put sunblock on everywhere else except for the tops Just of my not feet. Your feet. Well, the good thing is you could cover that with shoes and socks. That's true. So if you need to go out, <laughs> you won't look that crazy. Oh man! Yeah, that's. I mean, I haven't showered in days, so I my. My worry about looking crazy has – it's really gone now. <laughs> <laughs> it's really <laughs> – I was talking to my friend April and uh, who we pod with and she was saying that like that my lack of showering makes her feel better. <laughs> she oh, was good. like, it makes me feel normal. And I was well, like, thank you. <laughs> okay, what, what is your lack of showering? Let's be honest about how often we shower. Okay. Should we I, say it at the same time? One. Every three days. Two, three. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I just have thin hair, so I can't really go that long. I have Jen, to wash my hair every other day. I I should. I'm a person who should wash their hair every day. Like when I'm going to work, I have to wash my hair every day because it is very fine and very thin. And so um, but I just I just don't anymore. I put it up. I you put do on a, like real cute braids and stuff. I you just got that yeah. cute braid talent. I do a lot of um, dry shampoo and I put a hat on. <laughs> put a hat on it, <laughs> and I just don't care. A lot of headbands. Awesome. I used you got a to, good head for headbands. I'll say that. Thanks. Well, I do wear them quite a bit, so I hope so. <laughs> um, and sometimes when I look at myself, if I'm like on a Zoom, I'm like, I look bald, but that's okay. That's beautiful too. <laughs> bald is beautiful. It is. Yeah, I just you know, here's the thing: is like I've been working out a lot, which makes it even nice. grosser that I'm not showering, but. I also am like, well, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, well, I'm going to work out. So why would I shower? Yeah. And then I work out and then, you know, and then it's like 
it's time for like dinner and stuff. And then I just don't have time. And I'm like, why would I shower at night? And um, then it all, then the cycle starts again. And then I can't stand myself. So I take a shower. So that's what happens every three days. Okay. Well, I mean, that's pretty regular. That's more than my daughter takes a bath. I'll, I'll be honest. I have to uh, be like, when was the last time? <laughs> oh yeah. Max, there. we like, we're like, we have to make sure he takes a bath once a week. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, um, <laughs> Should we get into some quickies? Yeah, I feel like that really devolved into a, just a personal conversation. <laughs> <laughs> into like some chit chat. No, I think that it's interesting to other people. I, my friends and I talk about that. Like how often do you take a shower? Yeah. During the pandemic, especially. 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 That changed the game. Changed the Yeah, I mean, game. I was like a very – I mean, I was an everyday shower before. Mm-hmm. And now – I don't give a fuck. I don't get a fuck. It is like, it is kind of amazing because I feel like when I do shower or put on makeup, people are like, whoa. Supermodel. <laughs> wow. Look at you. Look at you. <laughs> like you and I went to dinner the other day and you were like, wow. And I was like, my hair is still up in a bun. I just, this is just clean hair. And I put a little makeup on. So. You know what? You were glowing though. You had spent the whole day at the zoo and you had a little bit of uh, like a outside light, not like light tan. You yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you looked zoo healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not a thing. No, you, you did. You look gorgeous, Al. Gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, now we can get into our quickies. (laughs) Okay, I'll go first. Okay. Okay, so you know how, like, we love a good friend love story? Yes. And also we love stories about old people who are still out there doing stuff? Yes. And also how we love stories about people giving signs from beyond the grave? Yes. Well, this quickie has it all. Hell yeah. (laughs) Okay. So this travel agent named Julie Flummer got a call from this veteran and who is – she got a call from a ghost on her ghost phone, and she from she got a call from this veteran and former pilot whose name is Jack Henderson, and he wanted her to help him and his two friends who were also veterans and pilots to go to this thing called the Reno Air Races, which I just think is like it's so. Of course, he's ninety. Jack is ninety, and he was calling from an assisted living facility in Oregon, and like of course he is because who else calls the travel agent, right? <laughs> Um, So he is best friends with these two guys, a 93-year-old named David Crawford and a 90-year-old named Dick Snyder, who all three happen to be former pilots and veterans. And now – and they met in this assisted living facility and they do everything together. So Julie is – she's so charmed by this guy and the thing that he wants to do with his friends. And so she does some research on tickets and she founds that they're actually not going to be available until later in the year. And Jack got really sad and he was like, well, I not, I might not even be around by the time they're available. Oh, man. So Julie was like, leave it to me. I'm going to figure something else out. So she had another idea. There's this company called Aero Legends Biplane Rides and they offer biplane experiences in Oregon in the town where these three guys live. And so she's like, I'm going to give them this trip. For free. So she posted her idea in a travel agents group on Facebook. And of course, people are like, yes, we want to give these three 90-year-old best friends like their last boys trip, you know. So they raised yeah. over eleven hundred dollars to give them this plane ride. And when they gave the three their gift certificates for the biplane ride in March, Jack joked, most of us had to change our britches. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was such an unexpected, unexpected, pleasant surprise. And then Julie learned that Dick had actually been planning on flying Dead with- for 50 years. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe I oversold this one. Um- <laughs> so she learned that Dick had actually been planning on flying with this company before 
to spread his late wife's ashes, Aww. but he hadn't gotten the chance to do it because of COVID. <gasps> so now it was back open and he had the chance. And Julie said, I'd like to think his wife is up in heaven saying, come on, honey, let's get the show on the road. Aww. Yeah. So that that's why. so sweet. I know. And they're really cute. So. <laughs> That's a nice, sweet quickie. It is a nice, sweet quickie. Of course, it comes from thegoodnewsnetwork.com. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, mine isn't as sweet. <laughs> not terrible, but not that sweet. Mine comes from um, articleforpeople.com written by Ashley Boucher. Sally, would you consider yourself an art aficionado? No, I would no. not consider. I do love art. I love I love going to museums and I love looking at art, but I don't know anything about it. Like you couldn't look at a painting that had like lots of different color, like abstract art with like lots of colors on it and know that like, oh, this is a boober. <laughs> Beber. Boober. Um, no. Justin Bieber. Yes. <laughs> This is uh, Michael Bublé. Ma Bublé? <laughs> um, Justine Bieber. Um, well, this young couple in South Korea were hanging out at the Lot World Mall in Seoul. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, it was all part of the street noise exhibition that opened there in February. And so they were looking around at art pieces and everything happened to be in frames. Everything was in frames, but then there was this very large piece that was set up and in front of it had paint cans and brushes, like paintbrushes scattered around it, which okay. made the couple think, oh, this must be interactive. So they then, this was on March 28th, they uh -huh. um, picked up some paintbrushes oh and God. dipped it in some paint and then uh -huh. proceeded to deface a piece of art that, that is actually worth more than $400,000. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> it's, that's amazing. The, God, can you imagine like just being like, look at us, we're so, we're being spontaneous and yeah, fun. And this we're is getting, fun, right? Like, we're going to get on this art thing, and this is so amazing. And then someone being like, what the fuck? I just like to imagine that, like, one of them hates art, and the other one was like, come on. This is what and it's here for. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> they, why would they put these paint cans here if they didn't want us to exactly. make our mark on it? <laughs> so the painting is actually untitled, but it's by an American artist known as John One. His real name is John Andrew Perello, but he goes by John One. Uh-huh. Even though he knows that it was a misunderstanding, he doesn't seem very happy that this happened. And, you know, it's obvious that the couple did it by – like, they didn't mean to deface right. it. You know, they just thought that it was part of it because it was the only piece of art in the entire entire exhibit that wasn't in a frame. And it had, like, the paint cans and the paintbrushes in front of it. I get why they would do it. I, I do kind too. of do. Yeah. And so Kang Wook, who's the CEO of content creator of culture, who is the co-organizer of the street noise um, exhibit, said that they're working with their insurance company and they're trying to do, because it's going to cost $9,000 to restore it. Uh -huh. uh, they're working with their insurance company and they're trying to do their best to, quote, minimize the harm to the couple who unintentionally vandalize the work so i think he they feel bad for this couple but yeah. john one told the new york times that art should be religious you don't paint on the church but you do oh, john get you, the fuck out john <laughs> you actually do paint on a church when yeah. it needs to be repainted you paint yeah. it when and if there's paintbrushes in front of it and not a frame and empty paint cans with real paint in it I'd probably paint it too. Yeah. I oh, I, I want now. I I want to go paint on all of his paintings. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's a very talented artist that you know can charge four hundred thousand dollars for pieces. You know? But a lot of his work, it, you know, for me, like for someone that is not an art aficionado, it looks like paint, like graffitied on a canvas, sort of thing, like splatter paints and uh -huh. such. I'm sure there's a lot more to it. 
I'm, um, I'm sure. Like brushes <laughs> and paint cans, <laughs> walls. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I feel bad for this couple. I really do. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. <laughs> I can just 100% see myself doing that. Being like, let's get into it. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) This looks fun. Yeah, we're here. I mean, I told you this night would be so fun. You just gotta trust me when I say museums are fun. (laughs) Boom, $9,000. Boom, just like that. (laughs) Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a wild story? I am, yes. Okay, yes. so I got my information from a Washington Post series. It's like an 11-part series by Ooh. Sari Horowitz and Scott Higgum. Okay. And from an episode of 2020. Ooh. And from the podcast You're Wrong About. Have you ever listened <gasps> to that? You know what is so funny is Dustin just sent me that. And was I like, just started to listening to it. it. And I just started – that's so crazy. We're so insane. We're insane. I'm listening right now to the – the even though I've read Jessica Simpson's open book, now I'm listening to the podcast talking about Jessica Simpson's open book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might know something new. <laughs> I think I have a Jessica Simpson problem. Which one are you listening to? Well, this, well, uh, this, this one, one, I yeah, guess. this one. Okay. Um, yeah. Although I just started, this is not what it, the one my story I'm telling, but it's I just started the one about um, Tammy Faye Baker. Ooh, yeah, and Jessica Hahn. So <gasps> I'm interested in that. So yeah, I Dang. love it. So it's all like these, like what are the podcasts? If you haven't listened to it, it's great. It's like all about like what we our perceptions of a story were and what the real story is like what the perception in the media was and then what the real story behind it is so i love it anyway so you're wrong about um from crime junkie and also an episode of generation y Ooh, all the good ones yeah so okay so i've been thinking about how like in all of these stories that we tell we're almost all it's because we're always talking about like romantic relationships there's a always like this obvious suspect in the case, right? So it's like where, you know, you watch an episode of 2020 or, you know, Dateline and you're yelling at the TV like the boyfriend did it, you know, because like yeah. obviously like the boyfriend or the husband always does it or the wife always does it. But I was wondering about these cases where there's there is the shady partner who then ends up not being the guy, right? Because we're all yeah. so conditioned to that narrative of like, it's always the husband, it's always the partner. Like, it's kind of hard to see it any other way. And so I thought of a case that is like, it's super famous, it's familiar to everyone who was alive in the early 2000s. But before I started Googling, I I didn't know the real story about it. I just really had the the first news story that I heard about it still in my head. So today I'm going to tell the story of the murder of Chandra Levy. Oh, wow. That's so crazy because I saw the Chandra Levy one and I thought to myself, ooh, I got to come back to that one. (laughs) And now I'm going to tell you about it. It's all happening. It's all happening. So I didn't, you know, I I kind of was like thinking about this and I was like, ooh, Chandra Levy. And so I was looking for podcasts about it. And that's how I came on, on to you're wrong about. Wow. Um, and I didn't realize that when I started looking at podcasts, I was like, oh, so many people have covered this. But, you know, if you're like me. You- it's been a long time. The reason I wanted to hear about it is because it's been so long since I've heard about it that I've, I've forgotten all of the details. Yeah. So me too. I like, I'm sure at some point I did know what really happened, but I didn't. I mean, if you would have asked me about it two days ago, I'd have been like, um, she had an affair and then she disappeared. And um, I think they don't know what happened. So anyway, so I mean, if you're like me, like it was Chandra Levy. You remember the story being about like a woman. She was an intern. She was having an affair with a politician she was interning for and that she disappeared. And then it was all over the news and everyone assumed that the congressman had something to do with it. But then because 9-11 happened just a few months after she went missing, they never came back to it and he was never convicted. And that was like, I just remember it was in the news for forever. Like it was in the news and then it came back in the news a little bit years later, but I didn't pay any attention to it. So, okay. So here's the story. Um, 
So Chandra Levy grew up in Modesto, California, which I can't hear Modesto and not think about my friend Alex's show that I've talked about a million times, the movie show, because it was set in Modesto. And it's about it's like the the conceit of the show is that there are two characters doing a cable access show about movies. Mm-hmm. And one of the characters always signs off saying, Modesto, you're the besto. And just every time I hear Modesto, that's what I think of. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So Shonda was described as driven, fiercely independent, and she had plans to become an FBI agent. And I read somewhere that her parents were kind of hippies. And so this was her rebellion was like to get really into law and order, right. which I think is so funny. <laughs> but, um, so like as an undergraduate, uh, undergraduate at San Francisco State University, she interned for the mayor of Los Angeles. And then as a graduate student at, at USC, she interned for the governor of California. So she was like a go-getter. You know, she was like, mm-hmm. she was on it. She was way more on it than I was at that time. Um, so when she was in her last semester of graduate school, Chandra got an internship in Washington, D.C. at the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And she loved being D.C., right? She wanted to be an FBI agent. She was into politics. And in the fall of 2000, she was with another friend, this woman, Jennifer Baker, um, and they were in the Ryburn House House office building. And they decided, like, as two politically minded women might, you know, young people, like, we're going to stop by the office of our representative, who was a congressman named Gary Condit. Mm-hmm. And Gary Condit had been in office for 11 years. And he was like the Joe Manchin of his time. Like, he was like known as being a centrist Democrat. Like, sometimes he would vote with Republicans and sometimes he would vote with Democrats. Joe but- Manchin. Yeah, do you know Joe Manchin? He's the governor or he's the senator from West Virginia who's like holding up all of the Democratic stuff. Like he's like No, but I was just confusing it with the uh reality show from the nineties called Joe Millionaire. Oh <laughs> I was like that fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, how is he like? He wasn't Joe even a real millionaire. It was fake. <laughs> That's the whole point. He was like a plumber. <laughs> he wasn't even that good looking. Oh my god. Okay. Sorry. So he was like the Joe Millionaire of his time. <laughs> um, so Gary Condit was like he was like the only Democrat who came out publicly to say that Clinton, Bill Clinton, should resign during the Monica Lewinsky affair. Like so. Right. So, right. So he was kind of, he he made a name for himself, but he was kind of a guy in the middle. But he had run re-election a bunch of time. People loved him. He was born in, he had been born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was a son of a Baptist preacher. He met his wife, Carolyn, in high school, and the two got married right after graduation. They ended up having two kids and moving to California because Gary's father had moved there to preach. And after college, Gary ran and was elected to the city council. And at age 26, he became the mayor of this small town that he lived in. And he his political career just progressed from there. And by the time he was 41, he was elected as a member of Congress. And he had this like wholesome image of like a small town guy who was fighting for the people back home. So when Chandra and her friends stopped by his office on that fall day in 2000, they were expecting to find like a low-level aide there who might, you know, give them, I don't know, you know, that they might be able to meet. But instead, they met Gary Condit himself. And so he was he was 52 at this point. He was charming. He was well put together. Chandra said he looked like Harrison Ford, which he did not look like Harrison Ford, <laughs> but she she thought he was very handsome. Mm-hmm. And so he offered to give these two pretty young women a tour of the Capitol and to escort them to the House floor where they could watch him vote, which you can imagine being amazing, right? Uh-huh. And he actually offered Chandra's friend, Jennifer, an internship because she didn't have a job at the time. And so so because he was a congressman, he had an apartment in D.C., but he would, like most weekends, he would fly home to be with to California to be with his wife and his children. But that meant that he was living in D.C. by himself. And because Chandra's friend now had this internship, she was stopping by more and more. And so she and Gary started having an affair. But I should say here that Gary Condit has never admitted publicly mm-hmm. that he they had an affair. And in fact, he denies to this day that their relationship was sexual in any way, although he did at one point admit to the police about the affair. So 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So the affair, the evidence of their affair is like pretty damning, like actually. So Chandra had started telling people that she was having a relationship with a powerful congressman and like she wouldn't give the name to her parents, but she did tell this aunt that she was very close to that it was Gary Condit. She also told her aunt that they had this five-year plan for him to leave his wife and that the two of them were going to be together. She told the aunt that Gary was very insistent on keeping their relationship private and that when they went out to places that he he was like, don't bring your ID just in case, I guess, their IDs were checked. His name wouldn't be associated with hers. Mm-hmm. And like when she came to apartment, when she was in the elevator, if somebody else got on, he told her, get off on a different floor than mine because I don't want people to see you going to my floor. So they apparently they spent a lot of time at his place. But in January, Gary, Gary gave Chandra tickets to George Bush's inauguration. And she – of course, he couldn't take her because he's married for 30 years. And uh, he so he ends up – she ends up asking this guy who's just kind of a, a casual friend. And when the guy picks her up, she was like, I need to go pick up the tickets for my boyfriend. And when the guy was like, well, who's your boyfriend? She was like, oh, well, he's a congressman, but I can't say anything else. So – At the end of April, Chandra graduated from grad school and her internship ended. So she had to move home and kind of figure out what her next move was. And on April 27th, she visited that same friend that she went to the ball with to watch a movie. And while she was there, she was like, I'm really sad to leave D.C. because I don't want to leave my boyfriend, the congressman, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And she said that she told this friend, she said, he's going to give up a seat. He's going to become a, lobby- a lobbyist. He's going to divorce his wife. And then we're going to get married and start a family. Oh, no. And the friend was like, you're being played. Like, and like straight up was like, this is, you're naive. Like, you're being played. And But Chandra refused to believe it. She was like, I, we are in love. He is promising that it's all going to work out. So this was, that was on April 27th. Then on the morning of May 1st, 2001, Chandra left her apartment and never returned. On May 6th, five five days later, her parents called the D.C. police and reported her missing. Her parents were frantic because Chandra was supposed to be moving home and she should have been home by then. Like she had sent them, like, here's my Southwest itinerary. And that was the last time they heard of her. And so then she didn't show up. So they tried to get in touch with her. They couldn't. They couldn't they couldn't get in touch with her. It was not like her at all to not respond. She was very organized. She was very efficient. She was very responsible. So police went to her apartment. They found nothing unusual. They found her phone and her wallet were there. The only thing that was missing was her keys. And they could tell that she had been packing up her belongings. Like it looked like she was getting ready to move, but she had just left to run an errand and hadn't come back. So meanwhile, Chandra's parents, Robert and Susan, start looking through her cell phone records to see if they could find anything. And they found, because they still paid for her cell phone, so they found a number that Chandra had called over and over that they didn't recognize. And when they called it, it was the office of Congressman Gary Condon. So Robert Levy was like, I'm going to look up in the phone book and try to call Gary Condit's home. And he was listed, so he called their home. And Gary's wife, Carolyn took a message, and Gary returned the call about an hour later. So Robert was like, I'm the father of Chandra Levy. I think you know her. She was calling you. She's missing. Can you help us? And Gary was like, oh, yeah, Chandra was a friend of one of my former interns. I had been helping – I had been, like, kind of mentoring her, but I don't know her that well. So, you know, like, I, but I'll do anything I can to help. Like, I'll even contribute a reward. But once Robert got off the phone – and told Susan what Gary had said, she was like, I'm pretty sure that this was the older man that Chandra was talking about dating. This is, you don't call someone that much to ask for career advice. Yeah. So Robert- where's where's the other phone records for any other congressman that you keep talking to over and over again? Right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty obvious. Yes. So Robert immediately calls the police that same day and tells them what they suspect, that she's dating this congressman. And Chandra's aunt then is, you know, in the loop and she's like, oh, yeah, she told me, she told me the name that it was Gary Condit. So police call Gary and he tells them, oh, same thing, like Chandra calls me occasionally for career advice. And then he says, I don't know where she is. I haven't heard from her in about a week. So on May 10th, four days after her parents report her missing, 
police finally get a search warrant to search Chandra's apartment. So they had been there before, but they hadn't been able to search it. But they finally get the search warrant and they find her answering machine is full. So most of it was her parents calling, but two were from Gary Condit on May 3rd saying, I'm just wondering where you are. I'm concerned. I haven't heard anything from you. And so obviously they're like, okay, we know you're lying, right? Like if you're calling her after two days of not hearing from her, like that's shows us you're having a relationship. They also found her laptop and on her laptop they the a police officer at the scene tried to look through it and find her search history but in doing like trying to find it he like accidentally erased <gasps> the search history. Oh, what an idiot. Dude. Yeah. So oh. this mistake actually cost them so much time because by the time the technicians recovered it, it was five weeks later. Oh and that God. was when they found out that she had been right before she left. She'd been searching weather reports and information about Rock Creek Park, which is this huge park in D.C. Mm-hmm. And Chandra, like everyone knew, she loved to exercise. She loved the outdoors. And she was like, you know, she went to the gym like religiously, but she had just canceled her gym membership. So if they had known this information from the beginning, they probably would have assumed like, oh, she's going for a jog in Rock Creek Park, right? But they didn't know that. They had no idea where she had gone. They also messed up in that they did not ask for the surveillance footage of Chandra's apartment building until it had already been taped over. So it was only stored for like a week at a time. And by the time police tried to look at it, it was already gone. So they couldn't even pinpoint whether she had been with someone when she disappeared or when exactly she left the building. Like They had no idea. They had no idea where she had gone. The other thing they found in the apartment was a pair of underwear that had semen on them. And it was later matched to, you guessed it, Gary Conda. Fucking Gary. Fucking Gary. So... Police call, like, police interview Gary again, and now he tells them, yes, Chandra and I were friends, and he acknowledged that she had visited him at his apartment, and, oh, yeah, maybe she spent the night a couple times. And so police were like, so this was an affair. And Gary said, in quotes, I don't think we need to go there, and you can infer what you want with that. So he told them he had not seen Chandra since the last week of April, and he assumed that she had moved. So by now, the rumors are flying around Washington that the intern, missing intern had been having an affair with the congressman, mm-hmm. and several other women come forward to say that they had also had affairs with Gary Condit. <gasps> so this one woman was named Jolene, who had been an aide for Gary Condit, and she said that they had had a three-year affair. She said that Gary had been manipulative and controlling and that she was concerned about Chandra's well-being. Wow. And actually, a couple days after Chandra went missing, Gary was seen throwing something away, like trying to throw something like deep into a trash can, like bury it in a trash can. And I'm not exactly sure. It's like in every Thing I read like there was a little bit differently about this detail like some were like it was an aide throwing it away and then other somewhere else is like it was Gary Condon he was throwing it in his trash he was throwing it in a dumpster somewhere so either way it was found somebody fished it out and it was a box from a watch and it turned out that it was a watch that Jolene had given him years earlier and so it seems like he was like he was getting spooked. He's trying to get a, rid of any evidence of any affair, right? Because he's like, yeah. I'm I'm in trouble. So please also talk to this flight attendant who said that Gary had slipped her his number on a flight and that they had been having an affair. And this affair was happening at the same time that Chandra was seeing him. And this woman told police that in the days after Chandra went missing, Gary had called her and asked her not to contact him for a while and even asked her to sign a non-disclosure agreement saying that that affair had never happened. And when police asked him about that, about the non-disclosure agreement, he initially denied it, but then he admitted to it. So Sounds like he changes his story a lot. It's, it does gotta sound ask him like two that. Times. Gotta ask him two times. They call him Gary Gary two two times. (laughs) So when Chandra has been missing for 10 days, the Levies are like, the police are not doing anything. They're not communicating with us. So they decide that they they need some help to get this case, like the attention that they believe it deserves. So 
they hired this organization that was known for getting PR for cases like Chandra's. And so the group ended up flying the Levies out to Washington. They held a candlelight vigil. The Levies held a press conference. And that is when this case went national. Because the same day that they held the press conference, the Post published a story and talked about the rumors with the affair about Gary Condon. And so the story just exploded. Like, if you remember it, it was played as if there was no question that Gary Condon had something to do with Chandra's disappearance. Oh, yeah. But the thing was that, like, even though Gary was doing everything to seem like the perfect suspect because he, like, was changing his story, he was being cagey, by the summer, the police pretty much had ruled Gary out because he actually had a pretty airtight alibi. He had been, during the day that she went missing, he had been voting in Congress. So, of course, he's on tape. He's on camera. He's a congressman. His schedule is, like, completely packed. Later in the day, he was meeting with Dick Cheney. So, like, and Dick Cheney, like, admits it, who was Dick Cheney, the vice president at the time. And so that weekend, and that weekend, Gary's wife was in town. Actually, this made him seem even more suspicious in the public eye because it was rumored that Chandra had been pressing him to tell his wife about their relationship that weekend. But that's just the rumor, you know? I mean, his wife, but that also, like, gave him an alibi because he was with his wife the whole time. So police basically came to realize, like, He's shady, but there's really no motive for him to kill her. She was leaving D.C. Like, she was getting ready to move. Like, she wasn't trying to stay, um, even though mm. she believed their affair was going to last. Like, she wasn't actually pressing. They, I mean, there was no evidence that she was pressing him mm-hmm. to do anything. So, So by the summer, the police had found her laptop searches They now believe that Chandra had gone for a run in Rock Creek Park, and they did this search of the grounds, but they didn't find her. And I read somewhere that this was another big mistake on the part of the police, like that somehow the search was just done of roadways through the park, like 100 feet within roadways, where really it should have been done within 100 feet of any trails. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but they, and either way, they didn't find her. I mean, it's a very big park. It could have, it's understandable. But so in August of 2001, Gary Condit was up for re-election and the speculation about him had like reached this fever pitch and it was like in the news every day. So Gary decides he needs to clear up his image and he agrees to do an interview with Connie Chung. And he insisted, he was like, I insisted it's live and it's unedited, but he just did himself no favors because- When Connie Chung, of course, the first thing she asks is about, did you have a relationship with Chandra Levy? He says, I've been married for 34 years. I've not been a perfect man. I've made my share of mistakes. But out of respect for my family and out of a specific request from the Levy family, I think it's best that I not go into the details about Chandra Levy. And so, of Mm -hmm. course, the, the media immediately goes to the Levy's and was like, did you ask him not to go into those details? And they were like, no, we'd love for him to be honest about what the relationship oh, was man. with Chandra. So 24 million people watched that interview and they came away thinking like, this guy is guilty because he 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 like just came off very robotic. He kept repeating the exact same lines that I'm sure his PR team had prepped him with. He just came off as very guilty. Mm-hmm. And so, and then September 11th happened and that was when the story left the spotlight and we were yeah, all- Yeah, that's why like I could, can't remember- What happened? Because I'm like, what happened? Yeah. So everyone was left. Gary Condon did it. So in May 2002, Chandra's body was found by a hiker at Rock Creek Park. See, I couldn't even remember that they found her body. Me neither. I was like, I think they found her, but I don't really remember. I mean, I remembered Rock Creek Park because – In 2004, I did an internship in D.C. right by there, and I used to go running quite a bit. And I just remember people being like, why are Chandra Levy? You know, like, watch William. Don't go running in Rock Creek Park. But so, like, it was obvious from her, the way her clothing and, and her body that she had been murdered. So police went back to square one with the investigation. They start looking for similar crimes in the area, and they found that in July 2001, Two months after Chandra Levy's disappearance, a man named Ingmar Guandique had been taken into custody in July for attacking two women in Rock Creek Park. Oh, wow. Right near where Chandra Levy disappeared. 
One attack was in early July and the other was in mid-May 2001, just weeks after Chandra's disappearance. (gasps) But both of those women fought him off and survived. He was an immigrant from El Salvador. He was known to be involved with drugs and gangs. Like he had a he had a record. So in 2002, for those other two attacks, Guandique was sentenced to 10 years in jail. And police actually investigated him at that time, and they found that he had not shown up for work that day and was later seen with cuts and bruises on his body. But police initially ruled him out because he passed a polygraph, and they couldn't actually tie him to the park. All They, they had these other assaults, but they didn't have anything to tie him to Chandra Levy. So he passes polygraph, but I mean, one, polygraphs are known to be fallible. And also it was conducted in English and his English was very poor. So really the polygraph, like passing the polygraph means nothing. So, and that is where the case stood until 2009. Like basically there was no movement in it. And in 2009, the Washington Post published this extended investigative series on Chandra Levy's disappearance. They laid out all the evidence against Gary Condit and basically concluded that he was a shady guy, he was a cheater, but he was probably not a murderer. They pointed to the evidence against Guandique. And this, of course, put pressure on the police. And so just months after the series come out, They end up arresting Guandique for Chandra Levy's murder. Wow. But they still have no physical evidence to connect him. I mean, of course, they hadn't found her body for over a year. So if they had found it sooner, they probably would have found some physical evidence of something. But they did have, all of a sudden, they had this former cellmate who testifies that Guandique had confessed to him that he had killed Chandra Levy. So they have this jailhouse snitch, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, Guandique denies he had ever he ever met Chandra Levy. He said, I didn't, I had nothing to do with her murder. But in 2010, basically off of, because of these two other assaults in the same park um, and because of this se- former cellmate's testimony, he was convicted of killing Chandra Levy. And he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. And the verdict gave Bob Levy, he said it gave him a sense of relief. And Susan Levy agreed, she said, but I don't feel any happiness. But then, Jen, in 2015, Guandique was granted a new trial because it came out that this jailhouse informant was actually super shady. He'd worked with law enforcement before. He'd lied on the stand. This woman, there's this really like convoluted story that like, There was this woman who Googled him and found out that he had been involved in like the Chandra Levy case, you know, and she was this former actress. And so she started taping him when they were together and she got him to talk about it. And she says that he was said that he made it up, but she doesn't actually have that on tape. So it's hard to know exactly what she had. But either way, this guy was not – he had lied on the stand. And so even before Guandique's new trial began, prosecutors dropped the charges against him because they were like, we have literally nothing to tie him without this testimony to Chandra Levy's murder. Yeah. So he was released after serving his 10-year sentence from the previous attacks. And then in 2017, he was he was deported back to El Salvador. Wow. And that is that's it. That's like it. there's no like Gary Condit's political career was over. He ended up running two Baskin Robbins cha- franchises down the road that ended up failing. Apparently he wrote this kind of semi- memoir like it's supposed to be fiction but also not fiction about what happened like what if i did do exactly it? Like I, like exactly really yeah so and apparently it's awful it's like really poorly written and he continues to deny the affair and he and caroline are still married wow. and yeah so chandra's parents are basically left knowing not knowing what to believe they thought they had a little bit of a resolution with the conviction of guandique but now they're like not sure you know the whole like it coming out that Gary had all these other affairs, like I feel like that kind of speaks to supports why it wasn't him, right? Because obviously that wasn't like an affair wasn't the a thing that he would kill for, 
Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, it just, it's so interesting to me because I'm like, I just remember it as like, yeah, we all know this. He did it. We just can't prove it. Yeah. But the truth was that he was never a serious suspect because he had an alibi and he had really no motive. So, okay. So Susan Levy told 2020, she said, I want someone to come forward and tell the truth. Someone knows something I don't know. She said, I guess I'll always have unanswered questions, but it's just sad. There's never a day I don't think about her, our future, grandkids, and the time we would have spent together. Oh, man. So so that's the very sad and unsatisfying story of Chandra Levy. Man, that's – yeah, that's not how I – that I, I definitely was wrong about that one. Yeah, me Just too. Like the podcast said, "Wow, <laughs> you're wrong about Chandra Levy." So I'm but. wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> me too. Podcast. Me too. too. Good story, man. Thanks, man. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for a love story? Yes. Great. I have one. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, so as many of you guys know, this is a topical love story. Prince Philip just recently passed away. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about the royals and the royal family, but lately I've been interested. The whole Oprah interview thing has got me like, why is this a big deal? And should yeah. I care? Yeah, I know, and right? I, I'm like, should I? Am I supposed to care about this? Yeah. So I feel like I want to start getting into all the drama of it. <laughs> but I did watch some of The Crown. My friend Kristen loves The Crown. And I did watch some of it. And it is very good. But I can't stay awake for more than five minutes at night. So it's like I need to be able to watch it in the daytime when I've had coffee and I'm fully alert. But right. it's a really good show. But I can't. It is very, it's it. very slow. It's very, yeah, yeah it's very, um, I had the same problem. I was like, oh, this is great. And then I'm like, yeah, I just am never going to watch it. So this is the love story of Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth. My sources came from an article for the BBC by Sarah Campbell, article for Vogue by Elias Taylor, article for NBC News by Rachel Elbaum, and an article for the Washington Post by Michael Rosenwald. So... Here we go. All right. Um, So Philip and Elizabeth, actually, they first met in 1934, which was a long time ago, (laughs) uh, at a royal family wedding. And they were very, they were young children at at that point. She was, I believe, like eight. He's five years older than her. They, The reason that they met at this royal family wedding is because they're actually second cousins. Did you know that? I, I learned that recently. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of that that happens. In, yeah. Um, aristocracy. <laughs> um, so they met when they were younger, but then when they first really met each other, it was five years later in 1939 when she was 13 and he was 18. At least that's the first time she remembers having met him. Yeah. So um, she at the time was a princess and she had gone with her parents to Britain's royal naval college where philip was a cadet at the time yeah there's actually this video that is circulating where um it's a video of this wedding where they had met each other for the first time and you can actually see them kind of glance at each other like whoa who's this person oh really yeah isn't that that's amazing yeah yeah and so he was the, a naval cadet and it was right during the time of World War II. Margaret Rhodes, who is her cousin, actually wrote in an autobiography called The Final Courtesy. She said that Elizabeth was truly in love from the very beginning. But they were very different people. You know, Philip, he had lived in Paris and Germany and the UK. And his, he was his own royal family was forced to flee Greece, which was where he was born. So it, he spent most of his childhood away from his parents. His mother was actually sent to live in a sanatorium. Oh. Yeah, when in, when he had to flee Greece, and so then he served in the Mediterranean and the Pacific during World War II. And you know, Elizabeth was a princess, and she was very well educated, but she never left the UK. She basically her whole life was in preparation for when she would take over the throne but during the war they would exchange letters and they would write each other while he was in the navy she was actually being moved from palace to palace while britain was being bombed during the war oh Um, that makes sense 
And so she eventually settled at Windsor Castle. And then apparently she wrote a letter in 1947. She said that her and Philip used to spend time together after the war when he was stationed at a naval officer's school and um, they would spend weekends together whenever she had long breaks with her family. So yeah. they were able to find a way to spend time with each other. And so in 1946 is when he had told everybody that he was going to marry. He had already proposed to Elizabeth and they knew that he wanted to marry him, but he didn't make a public announcement until after the war in 1946. It was after her 21st birthday, at like a public announcement of the engagement was made. Okay. And he had actually helped design the ring, which was a platinum, platinum and diamond engagement ring and he used stones from the tiara that belonged to his mother who was the princess alice of greece oh isn't that cool that is cool and so and he had actually like written a letter to his mother saying that he had fallen in love completely and unreservedly it's very sweet and so because they had such different backgrounds you know you know how the royal family be doing there they weren't too thrilled ah uh-huh. You know, I think there's a lot of, it was a very Meghan Markle type situation. Mm. Um, so, but there was a lot of hesitancy before they got married, but eventually he was able to win them over and they were convinced that they were a good match. The reason that there was such like hoopla over the fact if he was a good match or not for her was because this was right after King Edward VIII was abdicated in 1936 when he fell in love with an American woman named Wallace Simpson. Mm-hmm. And that was a scandal because she had been um, twice divorced. Right. And so rather than keep his throne, he left the monarchy to stay with her. And so there was a lot of concern over the right people becoming a right. family. So when they announced their engagement in 1947, they ended up getting married just four months later. And she had to, this was, you know, in the years after World War II. So just like everybody else, she had to use ration coupons to buy materials for her wedding dress. Oh, wow. So even though she was a yeah. princess, she they didn't have all that much money. And so, but the wedding it's, um, was a huge affair. There was 2,000 guests at Westminster Abbey. And then they had a huge reception at Buckingham Palace. And apparently they had a nine foot tall wedding cake. That's a lot of cake. That's a lot of cake. She loved him so much as she wrote in a letter to her parents she said philip is an angel he is so kind and thoughtful we behave as though we've been married have belonged to each other for years and king george the sixth her father saw how much that she loved him and he wrote her back saying i can see that you are sublimely happy with philip which is right but don't forget us and so which was so sweet and so they ended up then after they got married they had two children prince charles which was just a year after they were married and then princess anne they had two years later and so right after they had their children philip was concentrating on his military career and he was a commander of a royal navy ship and she was basically an officer's wife. Yeah. You know, she spent her time with him and they actually lived a very easy, breezy life together, mm-hmm. thinking that they were going to, you know, her, her father was young. He was in his 50s. And so they just thought that he was going to be around for a long time and it would she would be much, much older when when she had to take over the throne, but just five years after they were married, her father unexpectedly died. And at just 25 years old, she had to become the queen. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Can you imagine oh, at 25? No. <laughs> Such a shithead. <laughs> no kidding. So Elizabeth then had assumed the throne and then Philip had to put his military career on hold so that he can be more of a like a royal consort Mm -hmm. to her. So it was very difficult for him to adjust. I remember in the TV show, they made a big deal about that. I know that it's not, it's not, totally accurate the show right but in in an interview in 1992 he actually said i i'd much rather have stayed in the navy frankly and he called having to leave the um navy as naturally disappointing so it was hard you know this was back in the days where like that was not a normal thing for men to not for to have a lesser title than their wives 
You know what I mean? And he was like a military man. And now he, became, right. so he put, he took on the role of homemaker. Yeah. She would uh, attend ev- events and stuff and he would be you know, um, taking care of the castle. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> he uh, would, you know, uh, he decorated things, but he, he learned to love it. He, they said that he loved gadgets and he was excited about having an electric mixer. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but he was happy to take on his role and support his wife. And they said that they ended up having four children together, eight grandchildren and 10 great grandchildren. Apparently, this is one thing that I thought that um, was funny was that they said that they hit they had little nicknames for each other and he would call her Lilibet or sausage <laughs> or sometimes just darling or cabbage. And it's like, let's uh, stick with darling. <laughs> fella. I don't think any one woman wants to be called sausage. Sausage. But maybe when um, it's like, you know, in a British accent, it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, even though he learned to, you know, enjoy his life as being the homemaker, he, he was famous for not liking all the formality of, you know, being a royal. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to carry his own bag and make his own drinks and, and you know, and he wanted to talk to people face to face, not through, you know, messengers. So throughout the years, even though he wasn't really comfortable with, you know, being a royal, he would still accompany her to big national moments and the opening of parliament remembrance events and big things like that and during these uh, occasions you can see there's like little clips online where you can see that during these occasions the way that they still look at each other with like a little spark in their eye when they catch glances at each other so they said that even after seven decades the queen's face lights up when philip enters a room and he says that the secret to a happy marriage is to have different interests. The queen loves dogs and horses and spends her free times with, with race trainers and breeders. And Philip took an interest in running the family estates. And they said that you can often, you could have often seen him carriage riding around Windsor Great Park. He also said once when he gave a 50th wedding anniversary speech, he said, the main lesson that we have learned is that tolerance is the one essential ingredient of any happy marriage, which sounds like something you say about someone that's really bothering you. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it may not be quite so important when things are going well, but it is absolutely vital when things get difficult. You can take it from me that the queen has the quality of tolerance in abundance. Um, and so in a, apparently in 2017 is when he decided to kind of re, uh, retire from public life. Uh-huh. And so for a while, they actually lived separately because she remained at the palace doing her official duties. And then he kind of just lived over Wood Farm, which is on um, an estate that they have in Norfolk. So, but in, it wasn't until when COVID hit in 2020, when they finally decided to live together again and be together at Windsor Castle. In 2012, Prince Harry actually once said, regardless of whether my grandfather seems to be doing his own thing, sort of wandering off like a fish down the river, (laughs) the fact that he's there personally, I don't think she could do it without him. Yeah. So from since March 2020 was like the final months of their marriage, which were spent together. And with while they lived together in the castle, they would spend hours and hours just reflecting on the extraordinary life that they had together. And they were married for 74 years. Dang. Prince Philip passed away this April 9th. He passed away peacefully at the Windsor Castle at the age of 99 years old. Wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. So like I said, I know I, I, I don't know a lot about the royals, but this is just uh, this like the, all of these. There are all these sources right now talking about their long, long love story. Yeah. So I thought it would share it's nice to hear that they that it was a love story you know and that it wasn't like an obligation or right um but yeah that's interesting i don't know that much about the royals either but i'll always hear about it 
Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. I want to know what's going on with Harry and Meghan. <laughs> Sounds juicy. Someone give us the deets. <laughs> I want like a Cliffsnose version. I was like going to look up the interview, the Oprah interview. Uh-huh. But it's two hours long, dude. I don't have time for two hours. Just tell me all the hot points. <laughs> who said what? Who did what? What the fuck's happening? Somebody send us the clip notes. Someone send us the clip notes. I don't, I don't have time to watch it either. I know. I just read about it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there is a good, I think I've talked about this podcast before, even the rich. Uh-huh. Um, they're doing, or have done one on, on Princess Diana and, and Meghan Markle. And so I've been listening up on that. So I am getting some, some juicy bits, but I feel like there's a lot more there that I haven't heard yet. Yeah. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Uh, yes. Okay. I think I'm just going to do something I love this week. Okay. Nothing stupid. Yeah. Uh, not that there isn't anything dumb. I just don't want to. Um, I hear you. Sometimes it's just too much. It's too much. So. And, what? Sorry. Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, you guys, sometimes when we have to find, just to find love stories, just, I'm just going to be honest. This is a little, uh how the sausage is made for dumb love. <laughs> how the Queen Elizabeth is made. Um, when we're trying to find love stories and we're looking through like human interest stories and like what's the latest news, we dig through some of the most depressing shit. Yeah. It's so hard and it's so sad. And But it is nice when you find those love stories and those like happy news yeah. articles within the muck. Yes. And so I totally understand, you know, not wanting to do something dumb sometimes. Sometimes you got to take a break. I'm taking a break. I'm taking a break and I'm going to tell you about something that's just pure delight. Okay. And it's called the Great Pottery Throwdown. I think I texted you oh, about yeah, this. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> and I keep meaning to watch it. Oh, man. If you guys haven't watched this, it is it is basically British Bake Off for pottery, which, look, if I had any Bake Offs left, I would not have started this. But I'm so glad I did. It's on HBO Max. And it's just – it's British people – making beautiful pottery. And oh, they're British? Yeah, they're British. I mean, Aww. of course. It's just that it's that same bake-off. It's it's very similar. Yeah. It's just really delightful. And I legit think I'm going to get into trying to make pottery because it looks so fun. Dude, do it. My friend Milani. Um, hi, Milani. Hi, Milani. She listens to this. She used to have a pottery wheel in her one-bedroom apartment. Like, oh, really? second floor. <laughs> and this thing, I can't remember where she got it, but it was like this thing had to weigh like a thousand pounds. Yeah. Like and it's and it took up like her whole living room, but I loved the fact that she just was like, "Fuck it, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna take this pottery wheel." Um, she's now a pastry chef, a very talented pastry chef. But amazing, I, I love that Milani has, is a passionate person. Yes, <laughs> and teach me how to do pottery. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Um. So that's my thing. I love. That's I love it. I recommend you guys watch it. It's so it's so delightful. Yes. I'm going to be the asshole that brings it down for a minute. Okay. Um, so for something dumb, I do want to talk about the shooting of Dante Wright in Minneapolis that just happened. Yeah. Um, it's just, um, it's, un- we've, we're almost on our 100th episode. We're on our 97th episode. And I, the amount of times just in the lifespan of this podcast, it, the amount of times that we have talked about black men being murdered by police yeah. during routine traffic stops or just something something that never in a million years should guns have been drawn or violence should have been used or um, it's just a really sad fucking reality and yeah. it's, uh, it's I, like my heart goes out to his family to his mother that he was on the phone with when it happened mm-hmm. and I know that this per- the police officer apparently says that it was a, an accident. Right. That, you know, they were trying to use the taser. But why we have police officers that aren't trained 
well enough to know the difference between a gun and their taser in the mo- these moments. Yeah. Why it was even brought to such a level during – he was pulled over – for um, expired tags, I believe. And yeah. So my heart goes out to his mother, to his family, to his girlfriend, China, to his two-year-old son, Dante Jr. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of at a loss for words. All I can say is that my heart is with his families. And um, there is, for something I love, um, there are people that are um, organizing help for his girlfriend, China, and his son. It's a group called Holistic Ho, which is spelled H-E-A-U-X. Uh-huh. And you can donate money either to, you can either Venmo at Holistic Ho, which is spelled H O. L-I-S-T-I-C-H-E-A-U-X mm-hmm. or um, you can directly cash out money to China at dollar sign hubby 98 that's dollar sign H-U-B-B-Y 98 if you want to help support his family they have to pay for funeral expenses um, you know she's now a single mother Yeah, they're also taking donations spurs and um, you know just different items that they need for their for their child so um yeah you, thank you for finding that and yeah. finding those sources and ugh, yeah that was the dumb I thing i didn't want to talk about I know. <laughs> so thanks for talking about it because it needs to be talked about his name needs to be said and um and it's yeah it's just a yeah fucking sad reality it really is but yeah uh, thank you guys for listening thanks for hanging in there thanks for letting us have a week off we'll be back next week with fresh new content for you yes um you guys can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com you can find us on all the socials at dumblovepodcast you can um you can rate you can review you can tell a friend we love it all yep tell all your friends <laughs> thank you so much for listening and don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love Dum 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 d